Good morning and welcome to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. You're here with myself, Jaime, and with Carol. Good morning, Carol. Hi, how are you going? I'm very well. And Carol, who do we have on today? We have a wonderful guest this morning, one of my favourite people. We've got Leslie Podesta. Leslie's the CEO of the Alana and Madeline Foundation, which is a charity devoted to children's safety, particularly freedom from violence. Um, and we'll hear a lot more about her work shortly. Fantastic. I think this is our cup of tea, Carol. So let's hear the first song chosen by Leslie. The track you just heard was Everybody Hurts by Rem. And maybe it might be a way to introduce Leslie. How did you? Ch why did you choose this song? I chose this song because I like it a lot, <laughs> but also um, it's a really strong message, isn't it? We all at some time feel sadness, and one of the one of the parts of the song is about contemplating suicide, and I think many people can get to that point in their life. And the song is a very strong message around hope, but also about empathy, that recognizing that we all have that said sometimes that it's too much, it's too hard, but it's really important to recognize that you're part of a broader humanity and that this is a feeling that's shared by many people. And I hope in my job and the way I live my life to try to have that sense that we're part of a broader community. That's a beautiful segue, Leslie, into, I guess, talking a bit more about your work. Um, you're the CEO of the Alana and Madeline Foundation, which I think most of us have probably heard of because you do a particularly good job in promoting it. Um, but we might not all know the foundations of it, why it was formed and what it does. So give us a bit of a, an outline of what you do at the foundation. Thanks, Carol. The Alana and Madeline Foundation has a really unique role in Australia's history and I hope in our psyche. Uh, more than 22 years ago in April 96, um, a young man took up semi-automatic and automatic weapons and went to a cafe in Port Arthur in Tasmania and a couple of days later, there were more than 35 people murdered and many more injured. It was the last big public mass shooting in Australia. And it had a really dramatic impact on aim, I think. It's extraordinary to me that in response to such a horrific, awful event, that our country made a decision that having automatic and semi-automatic weapons so freely available in our community, having gun laws that were inconsistent across states, that we had to do something about it as a community. And uh, every state premier and the prime minister and the deputy prime minister at the time came together and made a decision that we would enact much stronger gun laws. And so it's been, it's a really important point of history in our country that it started the momentum for massive social change that's had long-lasting impact on community safety. But it also had another impact, and that's around the two little girls and what the response was to the two little girls. Alana and Madeline were six and three when they were murdered, and it wasn't just some random shooting. As they walked by, he chased them down, he killed... Um, 
Madeline, the three-year-old, in front of her mum. He followed Alana behind a tree and killed her. And so it was a time of great fear for the girls. And their mum saw them killed and she was murdered as well. And their dad, who wasn't at Port Arthur on the day, um, Walter, he was left with no family whatsoever and he woke up the next morning and fell to his knees when it was his birthday. <laughs> he recognised that, you know, he'd lost everyone, everyone who mattered to him. And Walter, along with other people, said that their death should not go in vain and that that no one, no child should feel that fear and no child should be hunted down like that and that trauma inflicted in that type, uh, we needed to prevent it. We needed to prevent that violence and importantly for children who'd experienced that, we needed to care for them. And they created a foundation in the children's name. And I think it's a testimony to him and to what our country stands for, that over 20 years on, it's now more than 2 million children have been helped as a result of that. We really focus on preventing violence towards children, and but also we increasingly have a focus on what drove that perpetrator to pick up automatic and semi-automatic weapons? What made somebody so angry, so disconnected with their fellow human beings that that kind of violence and aggression was their response? Um, so we increasingly look at issues to do with the impact of trauma and alienation in early life and how can you prevent such significant violence um, in future? Obviously, we deal a lot with looking at um, the impact in the US of school shootings. It's something that tears our heart every time it happens. And we've been really uh, following and deeply immersed in the research, which shows that a number of the young men who pick up those weapons and shoot their peers are also young men who are very alienated from their peers, who are bullied, who are ostracized. So that whole issue of being kept out of the group at a young age and what does it mean as you get older is something that we really explore. Carol, I have to say, I have to commend you for the timing of this interview when we have a, a Victorian election in less than seven days and we have the gun lobby who's trying to get into the the um, political arena again. Um, and I'm sure that Leslie, you would have some strong views on that. <laughs> I, We work very hard to keep our gun laws safe and it distresses me greatly that we see um, many state governments subject to being held to ransom by single-issue parties funded by the um, arms manufacturing companies um, who have seen that one of the most effective political strategies is what the National Rifle Association in the US has done. They've brought it to our country, which is to get uh, single-issue candidates elected into state legislatures and trade off their votes in exchange for trying to soften gun laws. Uh, it's something we have to resist constantly and I am pleased in one sense that they are doing it because the threat of this has made people recognise how fragile our gun laws are and it's really important. We've been working now for two years to build a strong thing, a group called the Australian Gun Safety Alliance. We brought together a range of very interested public health, um, trade unions such as the T Education Union, um, AMA, church organisations, uh, anti-violence groups to say our gun laws have made our community safer and they should never be traded off, they should never be whittled down, never take a step back.
the tactics of that lobby are fairly extreme at times. I think you personally have been the subject of some uh, abuse and online trolling. Is that correct? Yes, sadly, uh, our, our local sector has followed the lead of um, some of the NRA operatives in the US. There seems to be, and we have no idea who it is because, of course, they're always anonymous or they hide behind fake identities. But one of the things that the gun lobby in the US has done for some time is that you shout down as hard as possible anyone who dares stand up. You troll them, you try to intimidate and scare them, you try to look like you're stronger and bigger than anyone who stands for strong gun laws. So certainly um, I've been subject to some pretty disgusting and outrageous um, threats and claims against us. I think recently there was one linking me to um, promotion of pedophilia online. Um, Let me just reassure you that would never be the case and has never been the case but it's certainly uh, an ongoing issue that every time we talk about uh, why our community safety is is critical and why our gun laws are so important we certainly get and I particularly get hit with um, some pretty abusive and extraordinary type of threats and allegations made against me. Very interesting, bullying at all ends of the spectrum. It's a it's a pretty constant in, in this environment, yes. And one of the things that we tell everyone who wants to do work on gun safety is that you also need to learn about being cyber safe and being able to work with um, the ongoing threat of trolling. But, you know, that's, that's a part of the feature of the democratisation of the internet, right? Anyone can say anything and they do, but it doesn't mean that you have to respond to what people say. People who hide behind anonymous and fake accounts um, don't really have guts and you don't have to engage with them. And in fact, some of the work that we do at the Alana and Madeline Foundation, helping kids learn to be, you know, strong, ethical, good citizens online is we help them to understand that responding to comments below the line is the way to uh, madness in so many ways that it's the best thing is not to engage we have an expression called don't feed the trolls and rising up above it being the sort of person that you want to be is so much more important than getting into a dog-on-dog fight with people who aren't even willing to use their own name. Mm. Um, going back to what you said earlier about your anti-bullying programs and also looking at the, the causes of alienation and anger, what sort of research are you looking at and what sort of programs are you starting to implement that address um, those issues? So we've been for some time, Alana and Madeline, uh, we're very com- committed to evidence-based work on bullying. One of the things that worries us all the time is that People seem to regard childhood bullying as not that important, that it's, you know, it's pretty normal, it happens all the time. And what I've been, we were deeply concerned about is that instead of teachers being given evidence-based research and strategies that are based on what we know around science, is that there seems to be a tendency in some parts of the education sector that the best way to respond to bullying is to bring in a motivational speaker who survived bullying to give a talk. Mm. And it's no it's no substitute for well-thought-through curricula. And we use an example that just because someone survived a drowning doesn't mean that they're a great teacher around water safety and water you know, preventing drowning. 
um, that you can learn something from people's traumatic experience, but in fact to teach how to be a positive and engaged um, community, how to have a positive school climate, how to uh, identify bullying and prevent it. There's good science around that and that's so much more important. So Alana and Madeline has the National Centre Against Bullying, which brings together evidence-based research around bullying and we provide training, education and support materials for schools. We do run um, workshops, but they're all based on evidence, not just on experience or an opinion, um, to try and give teachers and parents and students tools. And Leslie, I imagine as well that rather than just going to a school as a one-off, you have something that is ongoing Absolutely. and there's follow-up. Absolutely. So we have a framework which we work with schools and we provide um, ongoing support for the school as they implement the framework. What we know is that um, schools who want to do it, they want to do it well. It takes a bit of time, but by engaging with them. So we don't just hand out an access to a website and say, here you go. Uh, we have um, people who work within the school, so they're all trained facilitators. You're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM, and this morning our guest is Leslie Podesta, who is the CEO of the Alana and Madeline Foundation. I think it might be time for our second music break, uh, Leslie, and all the music that we're playing today has been chosen by you, so you can tell us later why you chose this particular one. All right, and that was the swimming song, Kate and Anna McGarrigal, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> tell us about that, Leslie. I love that song and I love it. I chose it because it's almost swimming weather <laughs> and so it's a great opportunity to think about uh, summer and having fun and being happy. But also the McGarrigal sisters have been such a formative part of my, um, as I grew up, They, the, a number of their songs really spoke to me. And Kate, uh, who died of cancer, she really was someone who helped influence a, a real generation of, the, of performers. So sort of paying homage to some women who really made a difference in terms of the music industry. And it's a happy, uplifting song. And you're a swimmer. <laughs> and I'm a swimmer. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, now, Carol, I, I feel very tempted to destroy your plans because I, I want to ask Leslie a little bit about her and how she came into this work. Go would for that, it. Would that be okay? Of course it would be okay. So just tell us a little bit about you and how you ended up being the CEO of this foundation. Of Alana and Madeline Foundation? Yeah. Oh, everyone's got a story, haven't they? Um, I grew up in a really tough part of of Sydney. So I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney and um, on a very large housing commission estate. And we had over 2,000 kids at my high school. That's how big it was. Uh, you know, nearly 2,000 children. By the time I got to year 12, I think there were about 12, 14 of us, maybe a few more who graduated. So I was always very conscious of that life wasn't particularly fair and uh, having seen some of the things that happened to my friends, um, you know, very high numbers of sexual assaults at school, um, a lot of family violence and domestic violence. It was, I was always a, you know, I was always very conscious around the issues of social justice. You, you can't live like that. And I was very, very grateful that um, Gough Whitlam was our local member that oh, wow. I got to go to to university because he'd abolished fees. And I knew that I wanted to do something to give back because I was very grateful for the fact that I was one of the first people from my school who'd got to university. So I worked in the disadvantaged schools program when I 
uh, when I was finishing my degree, and had always had an issue, had always had a real passion about that education and investing in education, particularly for kids from some of the most disadvantaged communities, could have a transformative effect in their lives. It wasn't enough, but it was always important. And so I've always worked in areas of social policy and social programming, which is around evening up the chances, being fairer as a community, um, trying to make the bounty that most of us enjoy available to other people. So I've worked in um, in education, I worked in health, particularly in population health areas, um, and had some fantastic opportunities um, the National HIV Strategy Immunisation Program, uh, Australia's response to uh, global terrorism. But I also got to run ageing and aged care uh, from Canberra and I also ran the Office of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health. And when I worked in Aboriginal health, I became very interested in the issue of uh, childhood attachment um, with parents and how you build more protective behaviours. And that's an area where I knew of all the things that I got to do, I was really, I've always been grateful. I've always had fantastic opportunities to help shape positive things that our country could do. But I always knew there was so much more that we could do around building protective behaviours and that if children had parents who were able to exercise stronger protection toward them, that it would be a better life for those children. And I saw the role at Alana and Madeline Foundation and I thought that's what I'm going to do next and it was one of those things as soon as I saw it in the paper I knew that they would appoint me and it's been a really easy fabulous transition it's been a, a job that I love. Um, wow how long have you been there now? Uh, two and a half years. Okay. So Leslie you went to Sydney University is that right? And Deakin. And Melbourne, because I was one of those student politicians. So whilst I was nominally enrolled as an undergraduate, mostly I went to the School of Australian University of Students and was mostly involved in doing student politics. I did do my university subjects, but they were far less important than the next election for office. I I think you're you're preaching to the converted here. <laughs> so I was going to ask if if you were actually politicised once you got to university, but it sounds like you were already pretty no, fired up beforehand. I, when I was at when I well because Gough Whitlam was my local member and he was you know we loved him. Um, I I actually fainted the day he was dismissed. I was getting changed at Westfield um, Shopping Centre and I heard that he'd been dismissed and suddenly I was on the floor of the change room. I, I couldn't believe it. I was outside Liverpool Library, you know, protesting the day after. We were... We were outraged that the man who had changed so much of our lives, we got sewerage in Liverpool, you know, when Gough Whitlam was there. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but to go from having dirt toilets to having sewer, that changed so much. We knew how fundamentally important he was Leslie, for us. because we have had uh, Rosie Wynn from WaterAid here, we know about uh, the importance of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He was an amazing man. So, yes, I was always very... I was always very conscious that you can't help it. When you grow up in a community the way I grew up and you saw, I always saw the kids who lived on the North Shore of Sydney and how unfair it was that they had so much more advantage than I did. So I was always had a bit of a, 
I was always a bit cranky about that when I was a child. And But I was so delighted when we had a Labor government and suddenly we were going to have, you know, things were going to be better. And then for it to be taken away enraged me. And I joined the Labor Party as a very young person. I used to go to meetings in, in Sydney. That said, if I still lived in New South Wales, I doubt that I'd be a member of the Labor Party. <laughs> So what are the, some, some of the campaigns that you got involved in as a student politician? Oh, my gosh. As a student, well, it was it was the halcyon days and um, Tony Abbott was the was also running as the president of the SRC at Sydney <laughs> University. So I did run uh, against him a number of times and I was one of the only um, lefty feminists who got elected because I was always so friendly and helpful and I was always elected. I was managed to become the secretary of the Australian Union of Students the year that Tony was elected president of the SRC of Sydney University and I was the only non-liberal person on there. But I got enough of them, including Tanya, Peter Costello's wife, to vote for me. Um, So I was always one of those girls, even though I was in the Labor Party and I was a kind of a crazy feminist out there I always had friendships with everyone because I figured you have to work with everybody even if you disagree with their politics um, so I worked on abortion rights and I worked on um, well I worked on the education fees always because that was the big fight then John Carrick came in and they were going to reinstate fees and you know I had known coming from the western suburbs of Sydney that abolition of tertiary fees had changed everything for us we no one went to university where I grew up and to be able to go to university and not have to pay so much money had changed you know people felt like they could go and to bring fees back people did not understand it and I was very conscious that if you grew up in a family that had family money even if the fees are only five thousand dollars somebody could pay them for you but it meant the people where I came from they would never go because Going to university when you're in a poor community, it's not just the fees you pay. And this is the bit that people don't understand. If you are the smart person who's got through high school in your family, you have this amazing moral obligation to go and earn money for your family. People don't get that. So when you choose as the person who's finished year 12 to go to university and study for five years, It's not just the fees of studying. It's also the fact that you have deferred earning any income for your family for five years. That's a massive impact. So uh, I was outraged at anything that was going to hinder that progression uh, for my community. And I was very, very involved in the anti-fee campaign. And then here we are. (laughs) I'm interested to know how you ended up in Melbourne. What was that transition? Oh, um... Oh, it's so embarrassing. Uh, well, partly is, because the Australian Union of Students was in Drummond Street in Carlton and, you know, it felt like my spiritual home. But look, the reality was I fell in love and I wanted to come down here and have a relationship in Melbourne because, you know, I was constantly travelling Sydney, Melbourne. And of course, we broke up within a week. But <laughs> I loved Melbourne and I wanted to – I just felt like it was – I just felt like the politics were better here and – um, and look, I said a little joke before, but it was very hard being in the Labor Party in New South Wales because, well, they're terrible, really. And um, and when I came down here and I met people who are in the Labor Party, and to be fair, in every party, I worked with people across the spectrum, they were just a 
they were just more interested in the values and the principles that felt felt right for me. And um, it was a very easy transition. I guess I also, I'm kind of, you know, of a European background and it felt right when I came here. Yeah. Is that Italian? Yes, yes. My family is from um, uh, from Northern Italy. Where, where about? Uh, well, two parts. So Brescia yeah. and Genoa. Beautiful. I did spend a bit of time in my life there. I got mm. a couple of years living there. <laughs> All right. So, um, Leslie, you know, I'm just, you're so interesting that we run the risk of not, not covering everything that we wanted to cover because we just listen to you and forget about things. But uh, there were some important things that we wanted to talk about. One of them being um, trauma and mm -hmm. the impact that that has on on young people and on people's lives in general. So tell us a little bit about the work that your organization does around that. Well, you're right. And the long-term impact of childhood trauma, I think, is only just beginning to be realized and what we need to do to change that. So Alana and Madeline Foundation has for a long time had a commitment around helping restore the childhood hope and happiness to children who've been impacted by violence and trauma. And actually, I'll give you an exclusive here. Um, this is a program which the foundation has personally fundraise for forever and only recently thank you Jenny Makakos who did all the work we received our first grant um, from the state government which is fantastic to support this work um, so what it is Children Ahead has a team of four staff uh, they are all trained social workers and they're all social workers who've been in the field for some time. We're very committed to having experienced, stable, experienced staff who are able to support children. They all also have postgrad qualifications in trauma and play therapy and art therapy and other work. And essentially what we do is we take referrals, uh, usually from a child's school, but increasingly from police and the Victims Assistance Program. We focus very much on children who have been affected by violence and crime who have failed to recover and and be able to go on uh, and be children. We, the referrals we get are heartbreaking. We tend to get kids who've had significant violence and crime in their life of at any one time we'll be supporting about 30 children and which, you know, anyone who's listening will know with four staff is a very high caseload. Um, but at the moment of the 30 children we're supporting, eight of those children saw a parent murdered. Um, many of the other children have had a parent murdered, but they physically witnessed it. And that's a really big burden when you're a child. Nearly all of the children we support are children in primary school, so they're little. They don't have a lot of life experience to be able to put that trauma into any broader perspective. So our counsellors work one-on-one -on -one with a child. It's absolutely child focused it's about a strength-based model and we help them um, we help them move through those phases of dealing with trauma and help build some connection with them and confidence we work really closely with the teacher and we know that children who are traumatized who are back at school often exhibit either withdrawal or acting out sy symptoms 
and teachers who are wonderful. By and large, the teachers are fantastic, but who've not often had the kind of experience and support to deal with a child who's traumatized. So our counselor also one-on-one coaches and mentors the teacher so they can help that child in their recovery and we help them with small things as well as big things things about whether you physically touch the child or how they might or might not respond how to talk in a soothing voice to that child all of the things that will help um, that child be able to succeed and thrive in the classroom because what we do know is that it's really important for children to be able to reconnect with peers and to be able to have a safe space within their classroom to be able to learn and, and grow we also do some work with their families but actually not as much as you'd think because often the adults who are victims of crime are also having their own support. We really focus on children and that's been an important part of what we've been doing for the last two years because we recognize that children who are victims of crime have often been a little bit left out in their recovery focus. Absolutely and even in the language that we use we often talk about violence against women or family violence, but quite often we don't explicitly uh, mention the children. Um, I want to acknowledge uh, the presence of John Merori, who has Hi. just joined us in the studio, and he's just uh, getting ready. But it's slow. <laughs> um, so, um, anyway, so one of the things that you mentioned, Leslie, in passing, but I think it would be good to make it really explicit. Um, when we talk about the impact on uh, trauma, um, more and more the science is telling us that that actually results in physical changes to the brain uh, that mm. make children um, unable to do some of the things that mm. uh, schools are expecting them to do, mm. right? Mm. It has. It can have really significant neurological impact for children, absolutely. And part of the work that we do is we do some of the re-coaching with children. And it's why we work with any one of the children for uh, our average time is two years. And it's why it's such a unique service because most counseling support for children is about 10 sessions it's absolutely inadequate for kids who are at the point where they have been so deeply traumatized you need long-term support and you need to help and encourage them through that period we never leave a child or finish the work that we do with a child until they are absolutely much higher functioning much more able to self-motivate regulate and uh, have control over their own life beautiful um, we might just go now into your third music selection, if that's okay. Um, so let's hear this. All right, Leslie, would you want to um, tell us what we heard? I will try not to speak too long on this because I could talk for an hour. This is my favourite band in the world. So you just heard this for the first time in Australia. It's Green Sky Bluegrass. It's a little band from the US. Uh, I think they are the next big thing. I'm personally in love with the lead singer and um, I've been lobbying for some time to bring Green Sky to Australia. I, they're an amazing uh, bluegrass band. They're called Jamgrass. They cross over genres. And I, I love that song. It's about um, having a fleeting affair when you meet someone at a party and then realizing with regret that it was a mistake. <laughs> All right. Now, Leslie, um, off air before, um, John was asking a question which I think is really important uh, when you do this sort of work with children who are severely traumatized and suffering so much. And quite often we know that 
obviously they can project their trauma onto mm. the workers they are working with. Um, it is really important to look after your staff. And so John w- was asking, how do you avoid burnout on and uh, mm. I guess secondary trauma? So just tell us a little bit about that. Oh, uh, of course, and it's always a risk, but. Um, I would say in one sense that's a rookie error and I don't mean it to be rude, but we have been running the program for a long time and we've been very conscious about building the right support structures for our staff. So um, no one with a caseload just looks after it themselves. We have a clinical supervision. We have a manager of the of the care services. Uh, people do a weekly uh, process with their team and we, we share some of the load we also have a fantastic network of specialists who provide um, in service to our team who also provide if if we've got a child who is deeply traumatized who requires much more intensive counseling and support we also do referrals now it's very rare but we do that because it's about recognizing where you're going to make the best difference for a child's life we're not precious about saying this is our referral and we take them it's about what's the most important for the child Um, but the other thing is that we've always been incredibly careful we don't just hire um, a young social worker first year out it's not fair to them or to the child we we have people who've been in the field for some time who've got a bit of emotional resilience themselves because you need to for this work. We um, we do a lot of support for people in child protection as well, helping them with the skills and techniques that our team have used to give them a bit of support. It's And look, it's one of the beautiful things about being boutique. We're not at we're not a massive scale program at any one time. We have about 30 children. So we don't have a massive workforce as well. It's four counseling staff. And you can give a lot more personal support and attention when it's that size. Broader education community. I know you said you worked with the, the individual teachers of the children in the program, but you've obviously learnt a fair bit about the field and, and how much can mm. that be shared with teachers generally? That's a really good question and I think it's one of the priorities for 2019 which is to be able to share the model of work with others. We've been giving, we've been giving a number of conference presentations but it's one of those, the usual thing, isn't it? Because it's been a program that's been self-funded within the organisation. Every cent and every resort has gone into raising the money to be able to provide the services for children. The beauty of getting a bit of support now financially has been that we'll be able to take one step back and look at documenting the model. We've got the outcomes of the program and being able to disseminate more. So we work with the Centre for Excellence and one of the things that we'll be doing in 2019 is um, providing some professional support and sharing through the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare. That'll be fantastic. Okay, um, we don't have a huge amount of time left. Uh, we still have a few minutes, but there was one thing that I wanted to do today. Um, we have a Victorian election in six days, six days, as we have discussed, and I wanted to ask each of you, um, Leslie and Carol and John, when he joins us again, I wanted to ask you about what are some things that are important for, very important for you for this upcoming election. Starting with me. So many things. Um, Education, I think, is perhaps the bottom line for me, making sure that our schools are properly funded, supported. Uh, Health, infrastructure, our city, our state is growing at a rapid rate and it's uh, really important that we make sure that the resources are shared properly and equally and we don't have 
what we have at the moment is the inequality of resource distribution. So we don't want a, a happy, wealthy inner city and a sprawling outer suburban area where there's no infrastructure, no jobs, no services. So we really need a government that's going to commit to making sure that spending is equitable. I, I, I agree with all of that. Um, I think one of the things that makes you, Victoria such a fabulous place to work and live and bring up your children is that sense that there is a lot of respect within our community for each other. And, you know, I'm really proud of the fact that our state has such a high yes vote for marriage equality, for example. I'm really proud of the fact that we have had a long-standing government commitment and community commitment around refugees, uh, around the um, decisions that have been made around Indigenous people in our community. We can always do more. But I love the fact that that sense of community harmony has been a priority for our community. And I think continuing to have that ethos built in and across the sort of respect of each other and being inclusive, that's really important to me. The funding of schools, the funding of education, the funding of, of, of health services, of course, of course, there's no question. But they, it comes down to... I look at the USA, I look at what Trump is doing, the kind of division that's being fueled there, and I think I never want to live in a community like that. I want to continue to have political leadership that calls out that sort of behaviour that says we will never cross that line for the sake of a vote, and that's what that's what's really important to me. So, John, tell us what is important to you ahead of the Victorian election in six days. <laughs> well... I, um, I happen to see that uh, I've looked at the policies of the parties and I think, uh, quite frankly, the Greens have got the uh, best policies. Whether <laughs> they enact them or not is a different matter. So my basic uh, issue is that whoever get, I don't care who enacts the policies I want to see. Uh, if uh, the Liberals are going to enact the policies, fine. I'll wash my hands and do something else. Because I really want to see the policies come in. So what's the, what's, the, what's the priority in terms of... I think the priority is... Oh, well, there's so many priorities. But I think the priority is uh, health, environment and education, particularly for uh, young girls and women. Because once we... Some of these other problems, they'll be able to handle themselves. But we're seeing a lot of... Uh, uh, women that, well, girls and women that get entrapped in uh, situations that result in pregnancies at 17. Can I make my contribution? So, I mean, I think I agree with all of you. I, I wasn't asking about a particular party because, you know, I guess this radio uh, program... Um, well, we, but yeah, but I was making the point. It's the policies yeah. and the enactment of policies. Yeah, but and so if liberals enact the policies... I'm I'm out of politics and get I'll try to reforest England or something. <laughs> yeah, I, well I I mean I don't know that that will ha ever happen. Anyway, for me, um, one of the priorities needs to be fixing our youth justice system, um, and I think Victoria, under the leadership of Rob Hulse, um, became a beacon of um, progressive work, um, one of the best places in the world in terms of youth justice. And unfortunately, for the last few years, we've been retreating from that. Um, and this is uh, something that has been caused by um, constant pressure from the liberals, who just keep talking about slogans, 
um, and they never offer solutions based on evidence. I mean, like for example, this stupid bootcamp idea that they came up with yesterday, um, that has no evidence whatsoever about it, it potentially working anywhere, but they still, that's what they want to do. Um, but again, you know, f because of what has happened, because of the pressure, um, in some ways, labor, you know, and I feel, f I feel for them because it is a very difficult position to be in, but they, they have caved in on some uh, measures. For example, uh, before we used to have a separate stream for youth justice, Mm -hmm. um, and now more and more that is becoming less so. So now youth justice is being managed by the Department of Justice and Regulation. Anyway, so I think everything that you all have said, including the climate uh, emergency, but also we, re we really need to look after our young people who offend mm -hmm. because they often come from the most disadvantaged backgrounds and, and life hasn't been fair on them. And we need to be able to do something so that they have better chances of reintegrating in our society. Which is pretty much where Leslie started. <coughs> we've come full circle. Now we've got Leslie for five more minutes, so I'd like to turn the focus back to her. Um, we've talked a lot about your professional life, Leslie, and there's so much more we could talk about, but I just wanted to wrap up with um, a focus on your voluntary work. You've been a member of very many different boards and organisations. Just tell us a bit about some of those things that you do in your so-called spare time. I, I think I always feel like I'm so privileged and, um, you know, I can't believe that I grew up where I grew up and I've had fantastic opportunities. So I've always tried to um, give something back and, yeah, I've done lots of things. I was on the board of the Melbourne Writers' Festival and helped a bit of, bring a bit of a commercial arm there. I'm, I'm a pragmatist as well as an idealist. Uh, but I've also uh, been involved with basketball for a long time. So women's basketball, really, I was a WNBL commissioner for eight years. And that was really to try to raise the status of young women. I, I think basketball is such an under-recognized sport in our country. Everyone talks about how wonderful netball is. And netball's great, don't get me wrong, but it's got a lot of corporate money behind it. Whereas basketball is kind of every girl's sport. You know, any girl pretty much can play basketball and... I guess there tend to be those girls in Aboriginal girls in communities and um, working class girls who play basketball and you see their lives transformed. And I, I love the way that it's just, it's just an everyday girl thing and, and they get there and they start playing basketball and suddenly 16 and 17, they're in the national squads and they're part of a national team and they have this great leadership. And, and then it worried me that so often they'd finish their basketball career and instead of having this fantastic career path ahead of them as as a Australian rep for many of them it was trying to get their first job when they've had their career path interrupted for so long so I was really driven by trying to increase better the opportunities and make it a bit fairer for those young women in particular to have also some of the riches that comes from being um, Olympic champions that does happen sadly still more for boys and for girls and increasingly it's getting better so I've been driven by that trying to make that amazing competition um, give some of the rewards back to the players as well uh, but I also I work um, I'm on the board of the Phoenix which is a translational research center about trauma uh, at the University of Melbourne and uh, I like to just keep um, 
assisting where I can because I've got a background in in government and um, I've done a lot of work around sponsorship and bringing the corporate sector to do work around social impact. So I like to act as a bit of a a marriage um, counsellor, I guess, between issues that I care about and corporate Australia where they can do good work. We have problems with uh, the silo mentality in universities and in business Mm. and uh, it sounds like you're breaking that down. Uh, I just like to be a bit of a connector, I guess. And I, I, I always start from the point of view that I feel so privileged that it's terrific to be able to help those with resources to work with important causes um, and for people who are doing great work but who don't have access to corporate Australia or to government to be able to bring some of those connections together. So Now, Leslie, I'm afraid uh, we have now officially run out of time um, I, I can't even ask you how you fit it all in because it's, it is very impressive uh, what you do. Um, we are going to leave our listeners with our with your last selection. So tell us very briefly about that. that this song. is Patti Smith who changed my life when I was uh, 15. I saw the Patti Smith for the first time and I just thought she was extraordinary. I've loved her ever since. I've followed her around the world. I've met her many, many times. This is a song that most people haven't heard. It's called Summer Cannibals. And I like it because when I started to learn to run, this was one of the songs I had in my playlist and it always made me speed up. So I figured it was a great song to end end it with. Beautiful. It's been so inspirational to listen to you today. So we really want to thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you, Leslie. No worries. See you all next week. (laughs) 